You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa. And I'm Yvette. And this is National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for tuning in. We're building on our previous casts about how climate change will affect national security law practice and national security generally. Having discussed oil and gas and markets, we and everyone else on the globe are now moving into what issues will arise with the shift to battery-powered vehicles and the increased need for battery-charged devices. Batteries require minerals, a fact many of us forget, and batteries have a finite life, making them not a forever solution. In our quest for minerals to make batteries, we're moving into areas of the globe that are contested. As China and India grow and Russia sees the possibility of oil and gas markets diminish, we'll find ourselves competing with our adversaries for scarce mineral resources even more. Apart from mining these minerals, does the United States have the ability to produce batteries, or is that infrastructure in the hands of foreign actors on whom we would be unwise to rely? And is control of these minerals a national security concern since batteries are so critical to any number of weapon systems and our communications infrastructure? Many of the minerals sought for batteries come from somewhere other than terrestrial mines or mines on land. They're also located on the deep seabed, much of it three miles below the ocean surface in international waters. So what law governs this dark abyss on which humans may come to depend? And who has the capacity and legal authority to mine the international seabed? What risks are known about mining the seabed? And what risks may lie ahead for humans, the planet, and our national security as seabed mining develops? And what could happen to those deep sea communications cables that have connected people across the planet? And who owns these minerals, if anyone does? To illustrate these issues, we are going to direct our attention to a zone in the eastern Pacific Ocean between Mexico and Hawaii, known as the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, or as we'll refer to it in this podcast, the CCZ. Now, fans of national security history may know this area, a fact that we're going to get into later from the Glomar incident. But for now, just know that the CCZ is located 1,000 miles south of Hawaii, 1,000 miles west of San Diego, California, and is not far from three countries, Tonga, Nehru, and Kiribati, small island nations with which most Americans are unfamiliar. Are we heading into another round of environmental disaster, one from which we might never recover? Well, we're going to answer these questions, hopefully, and we're going to continue our series today on seabed mining from the environmentalist and conservationist perspective. Our guest today is Matthew Gianni, the co-founder and political and policy advisor of the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, a coalition of over 90 organizations worldwide based in Amsterdam. Unless you imagine he's a mere policy wonk, we would point out that Matt was once himself a commercial fisherman. Welcome, Matt. We're really excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Yvette. And thank you, Elisa. I'm happy to be here. All right, Matt, can you tell us first just a little bit about the CCZ? What is on the seabed there and what do conservationists see are the United States strategic interests in the CCZ? Okay, well, two separate questions, I think, there. But first, let me start with the conservation side of things. The Clarion-Clipperton zone, the CCZ, is an area of about 2 million square miles in the eastern Pacific Ocean, in the international seabed area of the Pacific Ocean. It has a type of mineral resource called polymetallic nodules, or so-called manganese nodules, that lie on the abyssal plains 
in that area. And these nodules have four main metals in them, manganese, cobalt, copper, and nickel. And it's the cobalt and the nickel that companies that want to mine this area see as the, as the, the, the valuable element of this mineral resource. But at the same time, the CCZ, and I can get into this in a bit, is an area which scientists that have been studying this part of, of the sea have identified as one of the most biologically diverse deep sea areas on the planet. And so there's a looming conflict between those who want to mine on the one hand and those who recognize or assert that we need to protect the environment in this area as states have committed to do uh, elsewhere in the world's oceans. What is the U.S. strategic interest? Well, the potential strategic interest is not just in minerals, but also in fisheries, also in the goods and services that the oceans provide uh, in terms of regulating climate change, sequestering carbon dioxide into the deep ocean, and a host of other issues, including, as, as I think you mentioned early on in the uh, podcast, the communications through the communications like cables that have either been laid through this area across the ocean bottom, or that are planned in the not too distant future. So I developed a cottage interest in the abyss when I watched Blue Planet with my son a couple of years ago. It was amazing. And we watched Blue Planet too. So, and this is really kind of like changing my perspective on this area. It's not just pretty flora and fauna. Can you um, talk a little bit about the laws and treaties that govern the international seabed and the seabed in the CCZ? And what is the perspective of the conservationists on the U.S. not being a party to any of these agreements? Okay, well, the international seabed area, which is over half of the ocean seabed worldwide, the remaining being areas within national jurisdiction within the 200 mile limits or on the so-called legal continental shelves is a governed by well the 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 seabed area and the mineral resources and the subsea seabed resources such as oil and gas if there is any out there in the very deep parts of the ocean uh, are governed by the international seabed authority a body that was established with the entry into force of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea in 1994. And the International Seabed Authority is based on a number of foundational principles. A, that nobody can go out and mine the deep seabed, the international seabed, all by themselves. They have to do so with the permission of the international community of nations as the whole. And this is embodied in a principle established under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, calling the seabed, the international seabed, the, quote, common heritage of humankind common heritage of mankind. This was the 1970s, we would say humankind today. Secondly, that all countries should have an equal opportunity to mine the deep sea bed, not just wealthy countries with the technological capacity to do so and the financial wherewithal to do so. And this was in response to a concern on the part of developing countries in the 1960s and the 1970s that the United States in particular, but also other developed countries were planning to start mining these international seabed areas, in particular, the area of the Eastern Pacific, known as the Clarion Clipperton Zone, which you mentioned earlier, which then was recognized as having some of the largest deposits of these minerals, and today is still the area of greatest commercial interest. The other foundational principle was that underpinned the whole international regime of mining the seabed was that it would be possible to mine without doing damage to the marine environment. 
The prevailing thinking at the time these provisions were negotiated, which was in the 1970s during the third United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea, was that basically the clarion Clipperton zone, again, the area of, of, of real interest, consists of basically rocks in mud with maybe a few animals crawling around in the mud, uh, but not much really there in the way of deep sea life that could be damaged by the seabed mining. And the fourth was that anyone that went out to mine the deep ocean, the International Seabed Authority, had to pay uh, a royalty or a fee into the International Seabed Authority to do so. And that fee in turn would fund the International Seabed Authority and whatever was left over would be shared out amongst the countries of the world. And the thinking again in the 1970s was that many countries, in particular developing countries, would enjoy substantial financial benefits from, in effect, collectively leasing these seabed areas to companies or countries uh, that wanted to mine. As it turns out, a lot of those assumptions in the 1970s no longer hold true. Number one, these areas are highly biologically diverse and not just the clarion Clipperton zone, but some of the other areas in the oceans that are being looked at for the potential for, for deep sea bed mining areas, such as active hydrothermal vents uh, with their unique chemosynthetic communities that live in these areas. Uh, secondly, the payout to the world from mining in the clarion Clipperton zone, based on estimates that have been done by Massachusetts Institute of Technology under contract to the International Seabed Authority, have indicated that the payout is likely to be minimal, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars per year per member country of the International Seabed Authority for each license for the deep seabed nodules in the clarion Clipperton zone. Thirdly, of course, the damage to the marine environment is likely to be significant, uh, quite large, in part because these minings will be huge. Each mining license would involve strip mining an area of seabed of about 4,500 square miles. And with, with the cumulative impact generated by clouds and plumes of sediment that would stir up and float off site of maybe 12 to 20,000 square miles uh, beyond the actual uh, area that was mined. I mean, you're talking about a mine, a strip mine that would be almost 70 times the size of Washington, D.C. And none of these mines are actually going to produce a whole lot of these metals, the nickel and cobalt in particular. And when I say not produce a whole lot, it would just to double current global production of nickel, for example, would require 60 mining operations to be running simultaneously at the production targets that the International Seabed Authority has in effect set for issuing these mining licenses. So we have a regulatory body that is quite elaborate. It consists of 167 countries plus the European Union. As you mentioned, the U.S. is not a member, although the United States does participate in the discussions at the annual meetings of the International Seabed Authority. And it's a body that, in our view, is no longer fit for purpose. Aside from the environmental damage likely to occur as a result of mining, the regulatory body itself is going to, in our view, is based on the experience that I and my colleagues have had attending these meetings for the past, the better part of the past 10 years uh, as observers to the ISA, is that it's not going to be able to control this industry once it starts, if the industry proves profitable. And what the Massachusetts Institute of Technology has said is that although it won't pay out much to the world at large 
once those payouts from the royalties are divided up amongst the 167 countries of the ISA, it could be quite profitable to the companies involved. And our concern is that if the ISA begins handing out mining licenses and they prove profitable to the companies concerned, more and more companies are going to want to get involved. More and more states are going to want to sponsor companies for mining licenses. And the International Seabed Authority is not going to be in a position to basically say no to any country or company that comes before it applying for uh, to, to apply for a mining license. Okay, on that score, and, and before we move into who currently holds licenses, Matt, I had a question for you. You mentioned that the ISA is no longer fit for purpose. Is a part of this the fact that they don't have any authority over subsea cables? And I mean, just as by way of illustration of sort of how they may be siloed, do they have any authority to regulate that? Well, no, they don't, actually. I mean, the ISA is under a legal obligation to ensure that any mining is done that that is permitted can be done to ensure, quote, the effective protection for the marine environment from harmful effects and to prevent, quote, damage to the flora and fauna of the marine environment. There are under the in the discussions at the ISA in developing the regulations that the mining regulations hasn't yet been developed. They're under negotiation. And it requires the adoption of those mining regulations, the exploitation regulations, as they're called, before the ISA can begin issuing licenses. And one of the, amongst the, the issues under discussion are how will the mining or the impact of mining relate to everything else that's happening out in the ocean? So, for example, as you've indicated, the cable industry is quite concerned over what's going to happen to these cables that are either there now lying across the Pacific in the area where the ISA has issued licenses for exploration and would turn those some of those or all of those licenses into actual mining licenses once the regulations for mining are fully in place and companies and countries apply for them. But the fishing industry, for example, is also very concerned. And their concern um, is based on scientific studies that have looked at the potential impact of these mi- the mining and the plume flows generated by the mining, including the discharge of waste sediment and small particles of the mining ores from the ships that would collect them on the surface, and have concluded that there could be a significant impact, for example, on the tuna fisheries in the Eastern Pacific. There is the concern over the impact on the so-called biological carbon pump, where you have species that feed in the shallower portions of the oceans and then migrate down into the deeper portions of the oceans during the daytime and basically export that carbon from the surface layers where it can get back into the atmosphere down into the deep sea where it would be it could be sequestered for for hundreds of years again the plume flows uh, not to mention the noise and the light and so forth that would be generated by these mining operations could impact those species in ways that would diminish the carbon export or the actual uh, ability of of these so-called mesopelagic and bathypelagic animals to bring that carbon down out of the surface waters and put it into the deep ocean. You have, for example, in the Eastern Pacific Ocean, uh, quite a few migratory species of whales, of dolphins, of sea turtles, of rays, and so forth that could impact, for example, the tourism industry in in coastal areas uh, that uh, depend on these species kind of showing up in coastal areas for whale watching cruises or the propagation of of the turtles in in, in terms of the beaches and so forth where they lay their eggs. So there are quite a, a range of potential impacts that could come out of 
out of all this. And of course, the one of concern to the United States, and I think many of the other Pacific nations that are looking at this, is the knock-on impacts of the mining in international waters, some of which is right up against. Some of these licenses are quite close to, to national waters areas, Hawaii, for example, Kiribati, and other of the Western Pacific nations. What could be the impact in terms of on fisheries and other aspects of their management of their resources and their fisheries and so forth within their 200-mile limits? There could be transboundary impacts arising out of the seabed mining. The, 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 the real problem is that what scientists have said is that the mining in the deep ocean will cause irreversible impacts, inevitable biodiversity loss and, and, and negative impacts. These impacts will be felt on geological timescales. They could hundreds to thousands of years. In some cases, species that depend on the nodules themselves would take up to millions of years to recover. And the idea of biodiversity or ecosystem offsets, you know, is scientifically meaningless in the deep sea. They're saying that these impacts could be permanent, but they don't know the full extent of the impacts because the bottom line is the, we don't scientific information on the full range of species and ecosystems and how they're connected, interconnected and how they function in this area is extremely limited at this part, at this time. They're only just discovering whole new species, whole new ecosystems in these areas. Right. And I think, though, the question that I had is that the seabed authority with respect to coordinating any of these issues has no authority. Would that be fair to say their authority is limited really exclusively to mining? They're not set up to coordinate, for example, with the cable interests or the fishery interests. And so in that way, they're utterly siloed. And to your point about them no longer being fit for purpose, it might be time to reexamine what it is they're actually looking at, what their authority would be. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. We're not advocating for, for the disappearance of the International Seabed Authority. We think it's important that there be a kind of a, a global commons aspect to, to the management of these areas in the high seas, in, in, in the international portions of the world's oceans. But the Seabed Authority does have to get unsiloed. And unfortunately, much of the debate and much of the discussion and negotiation at the meetings of the International Seabed Authority is focused on seabed mining on permitting the mining, how they're going to permit it, what kind of contracts they're going to issue, how, how many years does a country or a company get a contract to mine, et cetera, without really taking into consideration a lot of these other issues, such as the impact on the environment, impact on, on cable laying, fishing, and other uses of the oceans. So what I'd, I'd like to know right now from you, Matt, and I think our, our listeners would be curious too, is there are companies that are trying to mine that area or developing a plan to mine that area, as well as a variety of countries from Russia to the United States. Can you talk a little bit about who is trying to do this right now? And I, I believe there's also a company developing some sort of vessel in Rotterdam with a view to trying to conduct mining operations in that area. And in this way, if you could paint a picture of sort of the global companies that are involved now, I, and to the extent they're private companies that are actually part of or extensions of countries, if you could also mention that in your reply. Well, the International Seabed Authority has issued 31 exploration licenses to date, covering about 1.5 million square kilometers of seabed, the majority of which are in the clarion Clipperton zone, the CCZ area. Of these 31 licenses, approximately 18 are in the hands of seven countries. 
and it's the countries themselves that hold the license. So China, Japan, Korea, Russia, India, Germany, and France hold approximately 18 of these licenses, depending on when you look at partnerships and so forth. Another seven licenses, exploration licenses, are in the hands of three companies, one of which is a Canadian company called the Metals Company, which has three licenses in the clarion Clipperton zone. Another is a Belgian company called Global Sea Mineral Resources, which has two licenses for nodules in the uh, clarion Clipperton zone. And the third is a company called UK Seabed Resources, which is a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin which also holds two licenses. So at least the companies are looking at the, the commercial, they're, they're looking to commercialize the mining in the Clarion Clipperton zone. This is where they see the money can be made. All three of those companies are testing mining equipment. And the metals company, the Canadian company, has some pretty significant backers. Glencore, for example, a company called All Seas, which is based in Switzerland and was responsible for building much, if not most of the North, Nord Stream pipeline the gas pipeline uh, from Russia to uh, Germany through the Baltic Sea. And the third is Maersk. Um, now, these companies may be reconsidering their position. We're not clear. We understand that Maersk is getting a little bit nervous about being associated with the metals company. But the metals company has forced the ISA to have to make a decision, the countries that are members of the ISA, to make it, have to make a decision within the next year and a half as to whether they're going to continue down the, the road of of developing regulations to allow mining with all of the problems associated with environmental impacts and with the structure of that regulatory body not dealt with. And they've done that through triggering a so-called two-year rule, an arcane rule that was insisted upon in the early 90s by the U.S. and other countries that basically said, if the regulations aren't in place and somebody wants to go mine they can, and they're ready to do so, then they can simply notify the ISA that they intend to apply for a commercial mining license, an exploitation license, and the ISA either has two years to put the regulations in place or consider issuing a provisional license if the regulations aren't adopted within the two years. Now, it's become clear that countries are very far apart on key issues associated with developing these regulations, what the environmental rules would be, what the royalty regime will look like, how much of a payout do companies or countries have to make into the global pot, as it were, the extent to which developing countries would be compensated for loss of income because of the mining done in the deep sea bed, developing countries whose terrestrial economies are significantly um, dependent on terrestrial mining, issues related to transparency and the decision-making of the ISA, and issues related to how are they going to be able to constrain this industry if and when the ISA starts handing out licenses? And again, one of the foundation principles, as I mentioned earlier, is that all countries should have an equal opportunity to mine, not just the wealthy nations. This is something that developing countries insisted on in the 1970s. Fast forward to 2022, where we're at today, if every country wanted to mine, it would be a total ecological disaster. You'd have 167 countries mining, you know, sponsoring companies to mine wherever they could across the world's oceans, seamounts, ridge systems, the deep abyssal plains, etc. And this has now come up in the negotiations. Chile, for example, said, when are we going to stop issuing licenses? Who's all going to get a license to, to, to mine the Clarence Clipperton zone? So there's an equity issue as well. And from our point of view is, until these issues get resolved, the International Seabed Authority should not even be considering handing out mining licenses. And that may be the direction that the countries that are members of the Seabed Authority decide to take, potentially with U.S. support. I mean, the U.S. is an influential player at the International Seabed Authority, even though it's not a member. 
given its influence, you know, globally and with other countries. It could end up being a race to the bottom where everybody tries to get as much as they can before somebody else does, or the, the collective will of the international community with some real leadership coming out of the United States, coming out of the European Union, possibly China, possibly other countries, all of the above, could say, let's put this whole process on pause and let's really seriously consider, A, whether the world needs to mine these metals. And it's clear that there is not a societal need to go into the deep sea to get nickel, cobalt, copper, and manganese. There's commercial, it may be commercially viable, but uh, it's not socially necessary. And there have been studies looking at the potential for building renewable technologies without having to go into the mine, the deep sea, and have concluded that it's simply not necessary to do so. We can get the metals we need from better recycling, better product design in the first place, urban mining, better use of the materials we do have. And most importantly, and this is the direction the private sector is already going, finding metals and materials to build renewable technologies, in particular batteries that don't require expensive metals like and environmentally damaging mining practices for metals such as cobalt and nickel. You see Tesla, for example, transitioning uh, in its Model 3s, selling its Model 3s now, having sold these Model 3s in China, now expanding those sales to the US and Europe, using lithium iron phosphate batteries rather than lithium manganese cobalt nickel batteries. Iron is in much higher abundance than nickel or cobalt. Phosphate the same, and these materials are far cheaper than cobalt and nickel and copper for that matter. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 